the acts of Christians that changed the world. And within that, we've been doing this sub-series that will end today on idolatry. Uh, and of course, next week or this whole week, we're celebrating right, uh, Holy Week with Good Friday service and then Easter Sunday services, as was just announced. Um, so we're excited about that. And uh, as we come to the end here of uh, our study in idolatry, we, we approach something new today in it. Um, you remember the jokes, you might be a redneck if, you, you've probably heard those, right? I don't need to say those jokes, I don't think, but you might be a redneck if, you know, there's, I, I just started thinking about that and I was like, how do we know when we've made an idol of something? You might be an idolater if, you know, and we've kind of talked about that over the last few weeks, and specifically, I think today, the question I want us to think about is, you might have made politics your idol if. And you're like, oh man, you cannot take enough punishment, can you, preacher? Because you went on sex, you know, you've done all kinds of things, you did money, now you're talking about politics? Like, you might have made politics if you're idle, as your idol. If if maybe you feel like you've been threatened, uh, maybe your business isn't going well, maybe a crowd rushes into a public theater for trial by mob and chants for two hours, great is, fill in the blank. It's a battle of values, ideologies of gods. I think that's what happens here. Look with me. Acts chapter 19, verses 28 to 41. Paul is in Ephesus. This is the word of God. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word. And I pray today that you will give me words that are true, 
I pray that you will help us to be able to hear and to receive what your Spirit has for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I can make an idol of a lot of things, a whole lot of things, but I don't actually consider myself to make an idol of politics. I mean, I, I'm kind of disgusted by politics. I've, I used to be into it a whole lot when I was younger, and I'm just like, some things don't change much, and it's easier for me to be disgusted by it and stay away from it, and I'm happier if I just tune it out. So I'm like, yeah, it's good. I'm not saying that's right, by the way. I'm just confessing what I tend to do. But I think it really can be my idol, right? That's why I want to push it away. Not in a holy sense, but, but my angst about it reveals the level of hope that I have for politics to make life better and make things fixed and settled and happy and good. Right? You know very well that when we get into political seasons, the, the language that our culture uses one toward another, we both demonize and deify. Right? We, we can demonize a candidate that we don't like, and maybe there's demons in the closet, but whatever it is, we demonize. Or the flip side is we deify somebody, right? We go to the rallies and the conventions and we cheer and we shout, right? And we think that candidate, that candidate will be the one. He or she will be the one who finally delivers us from oppression, from war, from suffering, from injustice, from poverty. He or she will be the one who provides the health care that we need, provides the educational opportunities, makes them affordable that we need. And those things are all important. It's why we experience anger, frustration, outrage. And it makes me have to ask the question of myself and for you, do your politics have godlike status? Is it better just to ignore politics? I'm not saying that. No, it's not better to do that. I'm not suggesting politics is unimportant. I'm not suggesting we should just preach the gospel and preach the Bible and then ignore social issues like racial injustice or the plight of the unborn or human trafficking or abuse or unjust war. Politics is the way we address those things. So it is important. And so I want to talk to you today a little bit about this. And I guess what I'm trying to put before you, brothers and sisters, Christians, is that you should approach politics with a humble responsibility and guard against it becoming political idolatry. I want to talk about it in three ways. The first way is we should affirm the value of government. The second is we need to acknowledge the limitations of government. And the third is that we pledge allegiance as citizens. So first, we affirm the value of government. Government can be good. We see this in verses 38 and 39 in this passage. I think maybe I've put those in there. Will you bring those up if they're in there? Uh, There we go. Um, If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open. There's proconsuls. There's legal assembly. In other words, what Scripture is saying is even in Ephesus in a place like that, is that, hey, there's rule. There's lawful rule. In all nations, there's governance. And governance is good. It's supposed to be ordered and do things in good ways, right? Jesus is asked about paying taxes, Right? And what does he say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. He's upholding and affirming the value of government. Peter talks about it in his letters. And he explains that part of the purpose of government is to punish evildoers, to protect those who are good, so that it promotes flourishing. 
The, the idea, the Hebrew, the Jewish idea of shalom, peace in all things. So public service is good. It's noble. God's people served in public service. All through the Old Testament we see it. Them serving even in foreign governments. Joseph becomes the prime minister, second in command only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Daniel serves the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Nehemiah rises in rank among the Persians and becomes a governor under Artaxerxes. And Esther becomes queen of Persia. Xerxes' queen, when he reigns from India to Egypt, and Esther's the queen. Like God's people are repeatedly in places of public service. And so we should affirm the value of government that it's good. However, it also means we have this tendency to think that it can fix almost everything for us. In his book, Political Visions and Illusions, David Koizis says that Christians mistakenly see their political opinions, their political camp, their political ideologies. They, they see those things about how they should be shaped, right? That's just how we shape things. And he says, on the contrary, what's happening is each political ideology is based on a specific soteriology. Now, let me just stop for a second because he's using a theological word that means salvation, okay? So let me say this again. I'm going to use it saying that word salvation. Each political ideology is based on a specific salvation. That is a worked-out theory promising deliverance to human beings from some sort of fundamental evil or problem. What's he saying? He's saying politics can become an idolatrous substitute religion with fundamentalist zeal to solve the evil that is there. And I think that happens all across the American political spectrum because we look to it to fix everything. If you divorce your ideology from Scripture, you're prone to mislocate evil and say, that's evil or that's evil, when maybe it is and maybe it's not. And you're also prone to come up with a solution from God's creation and deify it and saying, this will be the thing that will solve it all. Affirming the value of politics is good. It is good. It's not God. And that's what I'm saying. Let's recognize that. It's good, but it's not God. When it becomes... When politics or government becomes your solution to all the problems, provides for all of your needs, is it possible you're giving it God-like status? It's not to say the government shouldn't provide solutions. It's not to say the government shouldn't provide for needs. It's saying if that's the source of all of it, what are you saying? So we need to affirm the value of government, but what I'm getting to here is we also need to acknowledge the limitations of government. Government's good, but it's limited. Pilate has a discussion with Jesus in John chapter 19, which I'm not going to turn to right now because of time, but it's in this holy week that we celebrate. He comes into Jerusalem. He's celebrating. He gets arrested. And when he's arrested, he's on trial before a Roman governor, okay, named Pilate. And this governor is questioning him, and he's really kind of like on Jesus' side. He's kind of like, I don't know, I don't see a whole lot going on here. I don't know why they've done this to you. And, you know, we should probably make sure that you can go. And he's like, and Jesus doesn't talk to him much. And he's getting frustrated. And he says to Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus' response to him is this. You would have no power 
if it were not given to you from above. What Jesus is saying is, Pilate, your power is limited and it's derived from the authority that God gives to people who govern. In other words, power is limited. Government's limited. God can take it away at any time. The government does not have ultimate power. It cannot fix everything. It can make laws. It can make good laws. It can make laws to punish wrong. It cannot force someone to love others. One of the dangers of government is the abuse of power. It's why in this country the founders limited the power of government by creating three branches of government for checks and balances so that hopefully it could prevent abuse of power, right? And so that's a good system trying to set that up. In Acts 19, what happens is there's a flash mob that gathers trying to get justice right away and cooler heads prevail and step in and say, hold on, let's do this in the courts if there's something that's been wrong. Yet government can be bad. It's being played out on the world stage before us with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the atrocities that are being committed there, the war crimes, even as President Biden has said. Horrible things that have happened. Stealing of children, rape, lining up civilians, binding them, shooting them, burying them in mass graves. It's not the first time that it's happened either. read an article this week that that's what Russia did when they invaded Chechnya. And they weren't punished then either. I would say that's bad government. In fact, I would say that's evil government. I want to do something here that's unique, I guess. And that, I mean, I'm going to do a quick excursus, okay? Kind of jump out of what I've been doing here for a little bit. But just, I want to say a few things about just war theory. You might be like, well, whoa, I thought we were talking about politics. Why are we talking about war? Because governments have the ability to wage war. And it means we need to think about that when war's getting played out on the, on the screens and stage before us, whether that's the U.S. being involved in war or any other country, how do we think about war? It's, it's horrific. It's sometimes necessary. But what makes it right? When is it justified? And so there's criteria for going to war that theologians, and, and this is usually uh, reflected too, even within things like the, like the United Nations, I believe, is that, um, but theologians will distinguish this. There's five basic things that make going to war justifiable. The first is there's got to be a legitimate authority. It's a government declaring it, okay? Because governments have the authority, right? It's people gathered, ruling themselves and saying, no, this is wrong. We're going to respond to whatever's happened, and the way we're going to do it is with war. Okay, so it comes from a legitimate authority. The scriptures are full of talking at Peter. I mentioned earlier, talks about it. Paul writes about it in Romans 13, that the government is given to you as an authority, a legitimate authority, But secondly, there must be a just cause. It must be sufficient to warrant war as a proportionate response because of the significant damage that war inflicts. So the cause has to be that serious that war is a necessary response. Third, there must be a right intention. And I think the right intention is the restoration of peace and the restoring an order of justice, not the hatred of people. Right? It's government saying system is wrong, This cannot be applied this way. It's not hatred of people. 
Fourth, it's a last resort. There's no available alternative because you've exhausted everything else and you've come to the point where, like, while we don't want to do this because the human cost is high, war is necessary. And fifth, there's some kind of reasonable hope for success. So you're not totally blind just marching in asking for the slaughter of your entire army and your population. Um, You want to, it may be a long shot, but you have reason to believe you can win. And those are criteria for going to war. But what about just war while it's being fought? How is war to be waged? How do you have, what are the criteria in fighting war? And there's probably a long, there's a long list I can tell you that, that our government military would have in this. But two principles that are pretty common are these, and I think are scripturally based. Um, discrimination and proportionality. Wars to be discriminatory. Okay, that, that's a word you don't like to hear normally, like, hey, we don't discriminate. In war, you should. What does that mean? It means you target combatants, armies. You don't target non-combatants, civilians, hospitals, churches, community centers. You don't do that. You wage war, army versus army, military, legitimate targets versus legitimate targets. And then proportionality. There's a proportionality between the damage caused in war and the good that is achieved, okay? And what this means is that war is not simply, it's not simply acceptable to say we are just going to annihilate that country or those people, right? Because that's a hatred of the people. And annihilation in that way is not something that should be done. And what that does is it brings up real questions about limitations of weapons, right? Which is why we ask questions about nuclear weapons and how those should or should not be used. So that's a little bit of an excursus, but because I brought up Russia and Ukraine, I thought maybe we should think about that and say, government and politics is important. How do we talk about when to go to war or when not to? And there's a whole lot more we could dig into there. I I realize I've just scratched the surface of that. But the reason I do bring them up is because I believe, and maybe I'm wrong, but at least from reports that I'm reading and hearing and what we're seeing, and I believe that Russia fails these criteria. And I believe it's the way it's doing this is evil. Its government is acting evil. It doesn't mean all the people are evil. Right? This is where it's easy as Americans to get in your Rocky Four mode where Rocky and Drago are fighting, and it's the Russians and the Americans, and they're evil, and we're good. And, like, people are people. And people from every language, nation, tribe, are people created by God. And people have dignity and inherent value as humans. And we must respect that, right? But what we can say is how the government is acting is evil. And there can certainly be people whose character is evil, And it's an example of bad government. And it's why then it's important for us to say we need to acknowledge the limitations of government. Government can err and it can err badly. It can't be the thing that fixes everything. If it were, why in the world do we still have so many troubles and problems? Why don't we have the peace that we long for? We just need a better government to come along to fix it all? For thousands of years of human history? 
I'm going to move on to this final point here, and that is we need to pledge allegiance as citizens. I'm saying this a little bit, have a double meaning here that you'll see in a moment, but I do want to show you um, some of the words from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, if we can put those on the screen, verses 13 and 14. He says that you should submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether emperor as supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. What he's saying is like, okay, Christians, Peter's writing to Christians, living under Roman rule, often being punished, you should still submit to the authority. Wow, those are hard words. Like, nobody wants to submit to anybody. And he's saying, like, submit to the authorities, right? And so, we should have allegiance to our country. Whatever country you belong to or a part of, and here I'm assuming most of you belong to the United States, right? But whatever that is, you probably love your country, wherever you're from. And we see this in verse 34. Let's put verse 34 on the screen. I think I have that up there. This is where they begin. If we don't, that's okay. Uh, oh, yeah. So this is, this is when they begin to chant, right? And they realize that, that uh, Alexander is pushed to the front of the crowd to start speaking. And all the Ephesian people, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, okay, Asia Minor on the coast of the sea there. They all realize that Alexander is a Jew. And when they realize that, they're like, Shut him down. And they start chanting for two hours, great is Artemis, so he can't even talk, right? And so what you have here is this like tribalism that is going on where we're better than you, we're different from you. It's this clash of people and values and religion. And it's interesting just to observe that, you know, that's human nature. It's nothing new. It still happens in politics today. It happened then, it happens now. But it should make us ask questions about that, right? Like, when is patriotism good? When is it not good? Or can it not be good? What's the difference, maybe, between patriotism and ethnic nationalism? And I'll offer you this suggested difference. Um, And this is, I'm not reading this from the Bible. I'm just, I'm offering you my suggested difference here. Um, I think a proper patriot is one who would rather be a citizen of our nation with its founding ideals rather than a citizen of another nation with its different founding ideals because it sees those ideals as different and says, okay, I want to be part of this nation or that nation because of those founding ideals. And and so you're being a patriot, committed to those founding ideals, and you're being a good citizen. An improper patriot would be one who considers the American people and their leaders to be more inherently virtuous than other people or leaders, or excludes other people from citizenship because they're not part of us and they're not God's special people somehow, or we have some special status, right? Then you're saying other people are inherently inferior to me and to my people. And I think that's an improper patriotism. That's an ethnic nationalism that leads to an idolatry. Right? I mean, think of it. It's what we actually, it's what we say and what we mean when we, when we say our pledge. The Pledge of Allegiance, right? For the Republic, one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. Right? It's for all. With the ideals and the values that govern us for all, no matter who you are or where you're from, for justice and for freedom. Those things we want to reign and and stand. And so those ideals are predicated on people who are willing to be, live good and virtuous lives, 
based on absolute moral and ethical standards. And if that happens, it works well. James Madison, the third president of the country, said, we have staked the whole future of American civilization not on the power of government, not on the power, not on the power of government, not on the power of government, but upon the capacity of each and every one of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. What he was saying is we are staking it on people who will seek justice and liberty, yes, who will say there is moral things, virtuous things, good and right and wrong, good and evil. That's what we staked it on, but not on the power of government. It's why Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who last week was the anniversary of his assassination, um, called for justice for all, and he said, let justice roll on like a river. And he was quoting Amos, the prophet in the Bible, to let justice roll on because he knew the convictions were that, look, Christian people must live by their ethics. And sometimes government errs and it's wrong, but we must stand for what is right. So whether the country honors God or not, we do not make the country an idol, but we must demonstrate that we pledge allegiance first and foremost to the king. And if your head's spinning in politics, you might be going, I think you're confused about which country you live in. We don't have a king. I know. But Christians, we do have a king, right? Because it was around 2,000 years ago when he rode into the capital city of Jerusalem on a donkey when people cut down the palm fronds like the children did here today and shouted, Hosanna, save us! When they said in a political sense, not politics of the earth and the day, but will you govern and save us and be the rescuer that we need that can redeem and fix everything? Will you be the Savior? And he rides in, triumphant, on a donkey. And you may think, triumphant? It rode in on an elephant or something, like, it's going to be triumphant. Okay, fair enough. We could dig into that too. There's lots of reasons for that, and he fulfills prophecy in doing it. But he rides in to do that, claiming to be king. 1 Peter 2, verses 12 and 15, he says, You should live such good lives that you silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. That's how we should live, as citizens who pledge allegiance to the king. And in verse 17, he says, in 1 Peter 2, 17, he says that we should love the believers. We should respect everyone, even the emperor. What is he saying? Love the believers? Christians who may be not well accepted or received in the day, like they were in Rome at the time, must demonstrate allegiance to Christ and love for one another, even... If we disagree politically, even when we find ourselves taking different approaches to try to solve problems in our society, Jesus commands his followers to love one another. Right? He does. All world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Isn't that such a nice saying? It's so sweet. Kids, can you memorize that, please? All men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That's fantastic. It really is fantastic. I'm not mocking it. 
But when we say it like that, it's innocuous. It's a platitude. Who were Jesus' disciples? Well, you got James and John and Peter are fishermen, so they're working class. You got Matthew, who's a tax collector. He's like IRS big government guy collecting money for a foreign government overseeing and occupying their land. And then you got Simon the Zealot. He's the revolutionary who wants to overthrow the current government. And Jesus calls these clowns together and says, love one another. Because then everybody will know you're my disciples. And I mean clowns in an endearing way. Like, I, like sorry. He puts people together in like crazy things. and say, You are not people alike. Love one another. That's how the world will know that you're my disciples. When you're not all alike and you'll love one another anyways. And Peter remembers this and writes about it to the Christians in Rome. Author and pastor Scott Sauls writes this. He says, the church is a family, not a country club. Country club's consumer-based. You pay your dues at the club, and in return, it gives you certain benefits and access to certain privileges. But a church, on the other hand, is covenant-based, which changes the entire way that you relate to the community. When things get messy because of differences, whether argumentative or cultural, we don't peace out on each other. Rather, we press in and pursue because we're called to love one another. So Christian, as we think about this idea, could politics be an idol? We've got to at least be willing to admit it could be. That we should be careful. Think about it. As a Christian, your primary mission is to be an ambassador for Christ. Do you trust in your politics more than you trust in your Christ? Can you still be a follower of Jesus if this country collapsed? and was in complete turmoil. Would you be like, I'm still following Jesus? Or you'd be like, I don't know. I thought, I thought this government was my Jesus thing, and this is what provided all my happiness so that I could live life the way I wanted. I had security, I had safety, I had pleasures and all the kinds of things I wanted, freedom. Or maybe put it this way, could you be a Christian if you had to live in another country where you didn't have those freedoms? Where poverty was rampant, where all you were trying to do was survive for the day? Could you still be a Christian? Or is your Christianity still so tied to the country in which you live here, for us, and its governance, that you're like, yeah, I couldn't do it anywhere else? If that's true, you have a big political idol. I'm not saying government's bad. Remember, not. It's good. I like where we live. I think this land's a great land. I guess the question is, what's your functional savior? So we need to affirm the value and acknowledge the limitations of government. And we need to pledge allegiance, not just to our country, but primarily to our King Jesus. How do we do that? How do we keep that straight? How do we remember that? How do we not make politics our idol? Well, today is Palm Sunday, right? It's a day we especially remember Jesus as king. Remember what we read earlier. Let's put uh, Luke 19, 38 uh, through 40 on the screen, if you would. Blessed is the king, the king, 
who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Go on to the next verse there. Is there more than that or not? Oh, that's it. I'll read you more. In verse 39, it says this. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In verse 40, he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. What is he saying? He's saying they recognize the king. And to not, you're acting like, well, I guess the saying would be dumb as a rock. The king, riding in victorious. Will you acknowledge him? Will you trust him as king? I guess there's a lot there to ask, right? It depends on the nature of that king and who he is and what he does. But he's a good king. He's the king who rides in, who stands trial for his people, is indicted though he is innocent, crucified though he is not guilty, but bears the sin and guilt for his people so that they are found free, that they have ultimate liberty and heavenly justice was satisfied so that you and I can be restored in our relationship with God. Now, how do you remember that? What do you do to say, politics is not my idolatry, not my idol. Jesus is my king. Well, I'm going to suggest one thing that you do, you will probably already do. And it's an act you do every single week. God commanded one day in seven that you should stop, that you should rest, that you should remember, and that you should gather with his people to worship the king. Think about what we do every week when we gather. It is a political act, a political statement right here, what we do right now. We are saying that Christ's kingdom consists of people from every tribe, language, and nation. Scripture says he has made us a kingdom to serve our God. We are his royal possession, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9. We take membership vows in which we pledge allegiance to Jesus and to his church. Our inheritance is that we are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. We collect tithes and offerings for the expansion of his kingdom. Everything we do is a statement saying, we are part of a kingdom, we are dual citizens. Yes, citizens of this country, but citizens of heaven. And every week we are reminded of that. Or we should be. Because Jesus came as the king, the ruling one. Not a republic, not a democracy. You don't get to elect him and you can't impeach him. He is king. He rules on his throne and he's not giving it up. The question is, will you acknowledge him as king? Death cannot defeat him. The tomb could not contain him. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God where he reigns from his throne. He is the king. It's unquestionable. Is he your king? Our hope is in our king. We pledge allegiance to him because he loves us and he gave himself for us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the king.
and we pray that you will help us to remember that each week as we gather. You are the king who exposes our idols, whether political or otherwise. You are the king who says that those idols must be kicked to the curb because you deserve all glory and honor. Jesus, would you help us to be people of your kingdom who see you for all your beauty, all your worth, all your glory, and worship you for it. We ask this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, the Savior. Hosanna, save us. Amen.